Once again, to the Raw Attitude Podcast on the Questionable Endeavor Network, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the Suplex Throwing Human Duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. One quick note up front, there will be a special guest co-host for the next episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast. Lee Carlos Cunningham from the Raw is Nitro Podcast will be joining the show to share his fantastic Australian accent with us. If you've never listened to Raw is Nitro, I would recommend you do because Lee breaks down episodes of Raw and Nitro, which went head-to-head in the ratings, and he then determines the winner based on his own scale. It's good stuff, and much like this fine program, he often does it solo as well, so I have to give him a tip of the cap there. So that's what's on tap for the next episode, but as for this one, let's dive right in to Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, July 6th, 1998, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from the Bryce Jordan Center in State College, Pennsylvania, the arena where Penn State University's men's and women's basketball teams play. Thankfully, it's not the same venue where the football team plays, but that's a whole other story. We open with a recap of last week's episode of Raw, where Stone Cold Steve Austin won back the WWF title from Kane one night after losing it to him in a first blood match at King of the Ring. After regaining the belt, Austin then hit The Undertaker with a Stone Cold Stunner as payback for Taker hitting him with a chair and busting him open at the pay-per-view. What will be in store for Austin, The Undertaker, and Kane tonight? Let's find out. Cue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs tonight include Vader for President, Terry Funk is my real dad, I have gas, and Stone Cold 100% nice ass, which just seems wrong because Steve Austin does not really come across as much of a sex symbol in my humble opinion. We open with The Undertaker heading to the ring, and for the first time on the Raw Attitude podcast, he does that move where he stands on the ring steps and quickly raises his arms to make an explodey noise as he turns on the lights. Good stuff. He grabs a mic and says he wants a shot at Stone Cold Steve Austin's WWF title, and he wants it right now. We then cut backstage where Michael Cole is awkwardly walking around and opening several doors, trying to find Austin to see if he'll accept the challenge. Surprisingly, Stone Cold does emerge from one of them, but he says he has no time to speak to Cole, so he blows right past him. We then get a lengthy tracking shot of Austin walking around backstage as he heads toward the ring, so apparently he has heard Taker's challenge, and he's ready to answer him. As soon as Stone Cold enters the ring, however, Vince McMahon appears at the top of the ramp with a microphone. He says he's not going to let his inmates run the asylum because he himself did not name The Undertaker as the number one contender, and only he will decide when Austin will defend the WWF title. 
That reasoning makes sense, but if Vince is so obsessed with controlling when his champions defend their belts, then why the hell did he let Kane defend the WWF title against Stone Cold last week? He could have just said no, and we would still be enjoying the reign of Kane. I mean, come on, Vince, that's just common sense. Mr. McMahon then goes on to say that Austin and The Undertaker will indeed be in the same ring together at the next pay-per-view fully loaded, but they will be in the ring together as tag team partners when they face the team of Kane and Mankind. Vince goes on to say he will name the number one contender for Austin's WWF title later tonight, and then he proceeds to tell Stone Cold how he feels about him being the champion by flipping him off. Austin then runs up the ramp toward him as Vince scampers backstage, and then The Undertaker just leaves the ring and walks to the back as well. Pretty entertaining opening segment, but hey, fuck all that fake shit, let's move on to the real fighters, because it's time for our first Brawl for All match of the night, Savio Vega versus Brackus. Now, your first question is likely, who the fuck is Brackus? Well... Brackus, real name Achim Albrecht, was a German bodybuilder who had actually signed to the WWF two years prior in September 1996, which was, funny enough, right around the same time they signed a weightlifter by the name of Mark Henry. Hey, Vince loves his big burly men, what can you say? Brackus mainly wrestled in dark matches in 1996 and 97, and one of those opponents was the Jackal, a.k.a. Cyrus, a.k.a. Don Callis, who recently talked with Lance Storm about his ring time with Brackus on their podcast, killing the town (laughs) you had to work with brackets dude the worst worst i've ever been in the ring with um he was so bad i called a i I was 210 pounds at the time i got him to do a press slam i said press slam me brother couldn't get me up for a press slam this is like a world champion bodybuilder jack oh he was gigantic yeah i met him here in calgary when he was training at brett's house could not get me up for the press slam i had to help him so finally he gets me up and then his legs are going weak on him, which is hilarious. He's like 80-inch thighs. And he's, he, he started staggering with me like he couldn't hold me. And I staggered and fell into the ropes. And I was like on my way out of the ring to the floor, ass over tea kettle. And I literally just barely grabbed the top rope and kind of flipped myself back into the ring. I'm looking at this guy. I'm like, okay, if you can't press slam a guy who's 210, what are you going to do while you're here in the WWF? Because there's not a lot else, you know? Well, I think he was only there for about two dark matches and three video, uh, vignette segments. I think he would, like, tear a quad getting through the ropes type of guy, you know? If anyone Probably... was ever under the impression that bodybuilders are athletes or that bodybuilding is a sport, I beg you just watch Akam Albright and you will be disabused of any notion that there's any athletic ability involved in bodybuilding. Eventually, the WWF did begin to air a few vignettes in mid-1997, where Brackus spoke in his native German and challenged some of the mid-card heels in the company, including Vader and Triple H. However, Vince McMahon soon realized that this jacked-up freak was not ready for prime time, so, as part of Vince's working relationship with Paul Heyman, he sent Brackus to ECW in early 1998. In his only pay-per-view match, Brackus was defeated at CyberSlam 1998 by ECW World Television Champion Taz in five and a half minutes, tapping out to the Taz mission. Brackus then returned to the WWF, taking part in their tour of Germany in April, where he faced Jeff Jarrett, and, because he was a native German, he would go on to lose every single one of those matches. And now here he is, making his Monday Night Raw debut in the Brawl for All. 
I really have to question the notion of debuting a wrestler in a legitimate fight instead of a wrestling match, but then again, at this point, maybe the WWF just didn't give a shit about him anyway. And so, let's get into this Brawl for All matchup, Bracus versus Savio Vega. Round 1 was actually pretty entertaining. Bracus successfully took Savio to the ground to earn 5 points, but the remainder of the round consisted of Savio absolutely pummeling the shit out of him. Savio staggered Bracus with multiple haymakers to the face and probably would have knocked him out, but the bell rang before he could do so. Round 2 featured more Savio domination, including nailing Bracus with a straight jab to the face that bloodied and possibly broke his nose. Once again, the big talentless German ended up being saved by the bell before Savio could knock him out, and he almost looked like he was out on his feet as he headed to his corner. Round 3 featured Savio successfully landing a takedown, then knocking Bracus to the canvas. The referee gave Bracus a standing 8 count to see if he could continue, and he did, but he was not able to mount any more offense from there. As soon as the round ended, Tony Chimmel announced Savio Vega as the winner without any sort of deliberation by the judges whatsoever. So that's right, in Bracus's WWF debut, he got his ass whipped by Savio Vega. Clearly, big things are on the horizon for him. And on a related note, Savio Vega actually did an interview with ProWrestlingStories.com where he claimed that Bracus thought the fights would be a work before he agreed to participate in the Brawl for All, and Savio had to inform him that they were actually legit. Germans are known for their high intelligence, but apparently Vince managed to find himself a real Dummkopf. After commercial break, it's time for our next match, 1998 King of the Ring Ken Shamrock versus Jeff Jarrett, accompanied by greatest character ever Tennessee Lee. I must say, it's quite a downer to go from a Brawl for All matchup to a Ken Shamrock match, because it just makes me think of how much more entertaining it would have been if they had put Shamrock in the Brawl for All. I feel like there's a fair chance he could have beaten Savio Vega. Before the Shamrock-Jarrett match begins, Jim Ross tells us that Al Snow and Head will be signing autographs this Saturday in Milwaukee before the WWF's scheduled event there, which seems awfully strange considering the fact that Al and Head lost their match at King of the Ring, meaning they are supposed to be gone from the company. Apparently, the WWF gave up on that storyline almost as quickly as they gave up on Bracus. You may recall that Shamrock defeated Triple H and Owen Hart in a King of Kings match last week, which was given that name because Shamrock was the reigning King of the Ring, while Hunter and Owen were both former Kings of the Ring. Remember that, because it's going to come into play shortly. The match ended when Shamrock hit Jarrett with a back suplex and then went to pin him, but a man who Jim Ross referred to as a fan entered the ring and attacked Shamrock. I'm not sure how JR didn't recognize that fan, because you don't often see many six foot nine, five hundred pound guys walking around, but as it turns out, the fatso who interfered was actually King Mabel. Now, if you listen to the last episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast, you will know that I had joked about King Mabel not getting an invitation to the King of Kings match, but I had no idea they actually brought him back one week later. My bad. So Mabel hits Shamrock with a clothesline, then a big splash, and Shamrock proceeds to sell as though his ribs are broken. Mabel then steps over the top rope and slowly waddles through the crowd as Jeff Jarrett celebrates. For those scoring at home, this was the first time we had seen Mabel in a WWF ring since the 1996 Royal Rumble, roughly two and a half years prior. The last time we saw him on Raw was the January 1st, 1996 episode of the show, which you may remember as the infamous Raw Bowl episode, and he lost to Diesel in literally 8 seconds after Nash simply booted him and pinned him. Fun times. After another commercial break, Michael Cole finds an angry Ken Shamrock backstage, still selling his ribs, and he then proceeds to challenge Mabel to meet him in the ring tonight. Will he accept? 
Mabel he will, Mabel he won't. Okay, I, I, I apologize for that one. And speaking of big fat pieces of shit, our next match is Vader versus Bradshaw. Last week, Bradshaw defeated Mark Canterbury in their Brawl for All matchup, but now he's back to fake fighting, where he typically sucks. Although I will say, there was one point in this match where Vader had JBL in the corner, and it looked very convincingly like both guys were just stiffing the ever-loving shit out of each other, which certainly would not be out of character for either one of them. The match ended when both men were pummeling each other in the middle of the ring, but then... Kane and Mankind interrupted for some reason, resulting in what I assume was a no-contest. Kane hit Vader with a chokeslam and an impressive-looking jumping tombstone, while Mankind subdued Bradshaw with the mandible claw. Jim Ross speculates that Kane and Mankind were trying to impress Vince McMahon in order to be named the number one contender for Stone Cold's WWF title, to which I say, aren't they both already the number one contenders for the tag team titles as well? I think they're just after a monopoly at this point. Our next match was the Headbangers versus Skull and 8-Ball, accompanied by their new manager, Paul Ellering. Ellering is wearing a hot pink t-shirt, which says, Who's Gonna Beat Us? And I just want to remind him that he's managing the Disciples of Apocalypse, so I imagine the answer to that question will be quite a few people. Strangely, when the Headbangers emerge from backstage, Mosh randomly takes a shot glass and pours a liquid on his arm, which looks like blood. But Jim Ross then helpfully informs us that it was actually hot candle wax, which, sadly, makes it seem a lot less cool. During the match, Ellering joins the commentary team for a little bit and informs them that he turned his back on the Legion of Doom because they're old horses who need to be put out to pasture. He claims he joined up with the DOA because they're identical twins, which means he only needs to program one mind. I'm not sure if that makes sense exactly. I mean, maybe if they were Siamese twins who were joined at the head, I could see his logic, but not so much here. The match was pretty dull and heatless, and it ended when Skull picked up Mosh into position for a side slam, and 8-Ball then bounced off the ropes and spiked Mosh into the ground. It looked pretty weak, but it was enough to score the three count for the DOA. Nothing much to talk about here, so I will just mention that on the last episode of the Raw Attitude podcast, I noted that Paul Ellering has barely aged since those 1998 episodes of Raw, and funny enough, in the present day, JBL tweeted a screen grab of Ellering where he said basically the same thing, but he forgot to close one of his other browser tabs, which was labeled Katka Kiptova Nude. And so, it is because of Paul Ellering that we now know that JBL likes to look at images of naked female bodybuilders. Good times. Our next match was Terry Funk versus a chest protector wearing D'Lo Brown, accompanied by the Godfather. Right off the bat, we got an amusing spot in the match where D'Lo gave Funk three chops to the chest. Funk then turned the tables and motioned like he was going to chop D'Lo in the chest as well, and D'Lo encouraged him to do it because obviously he's wearing the loaded chest protector and it would not have any impact. Instead, however, Funk just started punching D'Lo in the face. Fun spot. A few minutes later, the now 54-year-old Funk brawled outside the ring with D'Lo, and then, in one of his trademark insane spots, he hit a moonsault from the second rope to D'Lo on the floor, and, as appears to be the norm for Funk, he over-rotated and not only hit D'Lo, but also landed leg-first on the metal barricade at ringside. I repeat, Funk is 54 years old at this point. Sweet Jesus. For good measure, he then rolled D'Lo back into the ring and hit another moonsault on him, wisely putting D'Lo face down on the canvas so that he didn't land on his chest protector. The Godfather then decided to get involved, and while the referee was distracted, he took off his jewelry, wrapped his hands in it, and clocked Funk, knocking him to the ground. 
Also, as a side note, the Godfather was wearing a big gold chain, so I couldn't help but wonder if that was a callback to the angle in 1995 when he was the supreme fighting machine Kama Mustafa and he melted down the Undertaker's urn and turned it into a similar-looking necklace. Or maybe I'm just overthinking that. With Funk still knocked out on the canvas, D'Lo then climbed to the top rope and hit his impressive-looking frog splash, and that was enough to give him the victory. And speaking of The Undertaker, immediately after the match ended, the dead man walked to the ring and proceeded to deliver choke slams to both D'Lo and The Godfather. Terry Funk then got up from the canvas and patted Taker on the chest as if to say, thanks for having my back. But then Taker hit him with a choke slam as well, which actually drew some boos from the Penn State crowd. The Undertaker then walked backstage, with Jim Ross speculating that he was attempting to send a message to Vince McMahon that he should be the number one contender for Stone Cold's WWF title. However, there is one more noteworthy tidbit about this match. This was the final Monday Night Raw match for Terry Funk. Yes, I'm sorry to say it, but the Hardcore Legends WWF television tenure is over after roughly seven months having debuted as Chainsaw Charlie on the December 29th, 1997 episode of Raw, which, incidentally, was covered on the second ever episode of this podcast. And so... As is the custom, when a wrestler has his final match on Monday Night Raw, we must now send Terry Funk to Wrestler Heaven. that crazy son of a bitch. And so, when we come back from commercial break, that Yankee bastard Vince McMahon is walking to the ring. He grabs a mic and says he's going to tell the world who the number one contender for Stone Cold Steve Austin's WWF title will be, but first he wants several superstars to join him in the ring. The first person he asks to join him is Mankind, who walks to the ring with his left arm dangling limp at his side, since this episode was pre-taped six days in advance, and this is literally only two days after Mick Foley went off the top of Hell in a Cell at King of the Ring. Well, at least Vince isn't going to make him wrestle since he's still all fucked up from that cage bump. Right? Vince then asks Kane to join him, and the Big Red 24-hour champion heads to the ring. Finally, Vince asks The Undertaker to come to the ring, and he does as well. Vince begins by thanking Mick for risking life and limb on behalf of the WWF, but it may not be enough to be the number one contender. He then reminds Kane that he expressed so much faith in him last week, only for Kane to prove himself to be one of the stupidest men Vince has ever seen for being so willing to give Austin a WWF title rematch 24 hours after he won it. 
And the Undertaker is nothing but an evil, diabolical excuse for a human being, so why should he be rewarded for that? Well, it turns out that Vince officially names none of them as the number one contender. Instead, they'll have to battle it out amongst each other, because tonight, in this very ring, there will be a triple threat match to determine who gets the shot at Stone Cold Steve Austin's WWF title. The Undertaker versus Kane versus Mankind. Pretty friggin' cool. Also, as a fun side note, all three of these guys are still employed by WWE in the year 2017, so kudos to them for somehow still managing to make their way to the pay window. Up next, we get our second Brawl for All matchup of the night, Darren Drozdov versus Hawk of LOD2000, who decides to wear his face paint even though he's entering a shoot fight. I would just like to point out that in storyline, LOD brought Draws into the WWF six weeks ago, they teamed with him twice, and now Hawk and Draws are fighting each other, so it seems like they gave up on that alliance pretty quickly. Round one was dominated by Hawk, and that should come as no surprise to longtime wrestling fans, since he is no stranger to stiffing the shit out of his opponents. Out of desperation, Draws managed to pick up Hawk with one second left in the round and drop him to the canvas after the clock expired, but the officials decided not to award him five points for the takedown. Certainly a controversial decision, which will be talked about for years to come. Round two was actually pretty entertaining, as Draws mounted a comeback and landed several haymakers to Hawk's face. However, Draws appeared to injure his own hand with one of the punches, so he had to let up a bit as the round progressed. When they went to their separate corners, they zoomed in on Hawk's face to show that his nose was actually bloody, so Draws definitely seemed to get the better of him there. Round three began with both guys slugging the shit out of each other in an attempt to go for the knockout, but neither succeeded. One amusing moment was when Hawk's mouth guard accidentally fell out of his mouth and the referee went to pick it up for him, but Hawk basically said, fuck it, and decided to go the rest of the way without it. By the time the round ended, both guys were completely out of gas, and the fight overall seemed pretty even. Hawk and Draws shared a hug and then raised each other's hands, which actually got a nice-sized pop from the crowd. Apparently, the Penn State students were one of the few crowds which actually enjoyed the brawl for all. Tony Schimmel then got on the mic and announced that the winner of the fight was... Neither of them! It was ruled a draw, which I suppose we should have expected since one of the fighters in the contest is named Draws. I'm not sure if this means they have to fight each other again or if both of them are just eliminated, but I'm sure we'll get a ruling on that soon as this wonderful tournament continues. After a quick commercial break, Marvelous Mark Merrow and Jacqueline head to the ring. And speaking of the Brawl for All, they show clips from last week's fight between Merrow and Steve Blackman, where Blackman proceeded to take Merrow to the ground roughly 482 times and gain the easy victory in their matchup. Mero grabs a mic, but instead of him cutting a promo, he hands the mic over to Jackie as loud sable chants echo throughout the arena. Jackie says that she takes full responsibility for Mero's brawl for all loss last week because the night before was their two-month anniversary, so she went 12 rounds with him until his tank was empty. Ew. She then says that Sable obviously wasn't able to meet Mero's needs and, quote, She looked real good, but there was no motor under that hood. She couldn't shift the gear when Mark was ready to steer. All right, then. This brings out the aforementioned Sable, who, it should be noted, is not very good on the mic, but is still much better at cutting a promo than Jackie at this point. Sable continues the automotive metaphors by saying that she always had her pedal to the metal, but the problem was that Mero's tire was flat. And mark that one down, because it may be the only time you ever hear a man's genitalia compared to a car tire. But oh, the insults didn't stop there. You see, 
Clearly, with such harsh words being thrown back and forth, Jackie realizes that there is only one way to settle this feud with a bikini contest at Fully Loaded. Yes, that's right. This is the setup to that infamous moment. Sable then amusingly wraps up this segment by saying, quote, My bikini will be fully loaded and ready to drop the bomb on you, which kind of makes it sound like she just had a large meal and is prepared to defecate all over Jacqueline. And truthfully, at this time, I probably still would have paid $29.95 to order the pay-per-view, even if that was the case. After a commercial break, we segue into our next match, Val Venus versus Dustin Runnels, who is wearing blue jeans and a plain white t-shirt, because clearly, what gets a guy over is dressing him as boringly as possible. Not only that, but he's actually wearing white knee pads over his jeans, which I would call a serious fashion misstep. In fact, I'm going to assume that Dustin's brother Cody saw how he was dressed, and this was the inspiration for Cody deciding to wrestle without knee pads so many times in his career. Just a theory. The match was nothing special, and it only ends up lasting a few minutes, because all three members of Kai and Tai run into the ring and jump Val from behind as payback for last week when Val gyrated his package in the face of Mrs. Yamaguchi-san. And speaking of which, Yamaguchi-san and his wife head to the ring after Kai and Tai has beaten the crap out of Val. Yamaguchi then grabs a mic and proceeds to botch his way through a promo. Val Venus! <laughs> You're just a half-man Yamaguchi-san is! Gonna <laughs> half the man Yamaguchi-san Okay! No more hello, babies, oh, ladies, no, I'm gonna get you, okay? Oh, oh. Yamaguchi-san then slaps Val across the face as the camera cuts to Mrs. Yamaguchi-san, who suddenly does not seem too pleased with her husband's actions. Why, it almost appears as though she felt remorse for Val Venus. I wonder if that will end up coming into play at some point in the near future. Hmm. When we come back from commercial, the Nation of Domination's music plays, but in one of the more famous moments in Attitude Era history, D-Generation X actually emerges from backstage instead with all four members dressed up as members of the Nation. Allow me to set the scene for you in case you've never seen this before, but I'm assuming you have since pretty much everyone has at this point. Triple H is dressed as The Rock, with a fake eyebrow on his forehead, and the letters IC written in what appears to be duct tape on his European title. X-Pac is wearing several layers of padding underneath his clothes, with the word Mizark written on his chest. Billy Gunn is wearing a black hat and a vest while chomping on a cigar in order to imitate The Godfather. Road Dog is wearing what appears to be catcher's gear in order to simulate D'Lo Brown's chest protector, and he has the word Belo written on it. And impressionist Jason Sensation is sporting a large fake nose with caution tape wrapped around himself in order to impersonate Owen Hart. As a quick side note, if you aren't familiar with Jason Sensation, he was first introduced to the wrestling world at DX's public workout in Boston prior to WrestleMania 14, when Shawn Michaels and Triple H brought him into the ring so he could impersonate Steve Austin, The Undertaker, and, fittingly, Owen Hart. Also, one other important thing to note about this segment is that most of DX are, of course, dressed in blackface. Yeah. 
It always surprises me when they show clips of this moment on present-day WWE television, because you would think they would realize that sort of thing just wouldn't fly these days, but no, apparently they're totally fine with re-showing how hilarious it is when X-Pac puts on black face paint. Yeesh. With that being said, in terms of the dialogue, a lot of what they say in this skit is actually pretty entertaining, so I'm just going to play the entire clip for you, because it's such a famous moment. So here you go. Enjoy. You know, the croc just came from the bathroom. The croc. And you should have smelled what the rock was cooking. (laughs) Oh, look at Velo. Nation ain't gonna like this. I ain't faking. You should have smelled what the rock was baking. The rock was baking. Brother was baking. (laughs) Look at, look at Velo. He's the man. Get him shake his hand. When it comes to the croc and the ladies, and the croc hits rock bottom, he has no choice but to lay that smack down on himself. <laughs> you hear that? The brother smacks himself down. Oh, look at me, look. oh man, can you imagine the rock? He's broken every piece of furniture in his living room right now. Hey, wait a minute, look at this guy. Is that his nose or did park a bus on his face? Supposed to be Owen Hart. Well, enough is enough, and it's time for a change. Listen to that. It is Owen Hart. Did you hear that? Oh, what? Nobody listens to me. Nobody gives a damn what I think. And what the hell am I doing wearing this ridiculous outfit? (laughs) I look like a damn road sign. (laughs) What the hell am I? A school crossing? You know, I tried to be a tough guy, but I just couldn't grow my damn beard in. And you know what? I am not a nugget. I'm a black heart, damn it. A winner, a soul survivor. Woo! Things are not well in Calgary tonight. That is Owen Hart. And if anybody smells what the rock is cooking, it's me. Look how big my damn nose is. <laughs> what the hell am I? An art bark? <laughs> what does the brother look like? An art bark? Milo, look at Milo. Hey, 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 Rock. It's me as Ark Henry. I don't know what you're cooking. Smells like Oh my! But well, I think I'll eat some anyway. <laughs> you know something, Mark Henry? <laughs> Me is Mark Henry. <laughs> right. I know you're the world's strongest man, and the Croc's got a hell of a body himself. But there's one thing the people want to know. How do you get your pecs to go all the way around your back like that? <laughs> oh, man. What he wants to know is how... Shut up! <laughs> Look. Shut your mouths and know your role. Nation, it's real simple. We got two words for you. Definitely a classic segment, despite the questionable choice in face paint. 
I'm actually pretty surprised that they didn't end up using Jason's sensation more often after this, since his Owen impression was pretty goddamn quality, but oh well. And so, how do you follow one of the most famous moments in WWE history? Obviously, the answer is with a classic matchup, 1998 King of the Ring Ken Shamrock versus 1995 King of the Ring Mabel, who is dressed in a black, purple, and yellow outfit, which is reminiscent of his Men on a Mission days. The match was pretty short and mostly consisted of Mabel dominating the already injured Shamrock. However, Mabel eventually went to the second rope for some reason and attempted a flying clothesline, but Shamrock sidestepped him, causing Mabel to land face-first on the mat. Shamrock then put Mabel into the ankle lock, and the big man proceeded to tap out. However, Shamrock was not done, as he actually ended up keeping the ankle lock on Mabel for almost a full minute after he had already tapped. He eventually released the hold, but then he started punching Mabel in the face until WWF officials and Commissioner Slaughter came to the ring, and Shamrock finally headed to the backstage area. In the bigger picture, I'm not sure what the point was of bringing Mabel back, having him injure Shamrock's ribs, and then still lose to him cleanly in only a couple minutes in the same night, but then again, much like Brackus, I doubt the WWF had big plans for Mabel at this point. As Shamrock walks up the ramp, Vince McMahon and Paul Bearer pass by him as they are now heading to the ring for the main event. Vince takes a seat alongside the commentary team, but shortly thereafter, WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin heads to ringside and also joins the commentary team, much to Vince's displeasure. Mankind enters first, then Kane, but when Tony Chimmel announces The Undertaker, he is nowhere to be found. Chimmel announces Taker one more time, but he still does not show up. This causes Vince to leave the commentary table and head into the ring where he gives some instructions to Chimmel. Amusingly, Vince forces Chimmel to say that this match will now be Kane versus Mankind for the number one contendership because The Undertaker is a chicken shit. That certainly has to be up there with the top announcements of Tony Chimmel's prestigious career, right alongside any of the times he announced Edge as the rated R superstar. Vince then makes Chimmel announce that the contest will be a no-holds-barred, falls-count-anywhere match, and, in the case of Mick Foley, I would say it should also be considered a falls-off-anywhere match. And speaking of Mick, he is seated next to the ring steps, outside on the arena floor, and he has a microphone. He says he has already sacrificed enough for Vince, and he will not fight his friend Kane under any circumstances. An angry Vince orders the bell to be rung anyway, but Mick refuses to move from where he was seated. Vince yells at Kane to go after Mick, so Kane rolls outside of the ring. He picks up a chair, and, sure enough, Kane does indeed level Mankind in the head with it. He then rolls Mankind back into the ring, crosses his arms over his chest, and the referee counts to three, making Kane, once again, the number one contender for Stone Cold's championship. Vince McMahon happily gloats about the Big Red Machine's victory, but then... Kane removes his mask to reveal that it was actually The Undertaker wearing the Kane costume the entire time. Holy shit. I have to say that I forgot they ever did this angle, and I was completely fooled. I had literally no idea it was The Undertaker in the Kane suit, and he portrayed Kane's mannerisms perfectly. Fucking awesome moment. Although, maybe not so awesome for Kane, who I assume was beaten up and left naked by The Undertaker backstage. Also, I have to give them a lot of credit for setting up that swerve, because three weeks ago they did a similar scenario where The Undertaker was announced, but did not show up for the Tag Team Hell in a Cell match on Raw. After the match started, he eventually came up through the bottom of the ring to attack Paul Bearer, so I was expecting something similar for this match. 
The thought had not even occurred to me that it was Taker inside of Kane's costume. So kudos to you, Vince Russo, or whoever came up with that idea, because you did set it up perfectly. Well done. And with this episode of Raw now in the books, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they cluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Last week, the live episode of Raw, which aired the night after King of the Ring, absolutely slaughtered Nitro in the ratings by the score of 5.36 to 4.05. This week, however, Raw was back to being pre-taped six days in advance while Nitro was live from a very special venue, the Georgia Dome. This is obviously a meaningful arena for WCW because their company headquarters was based in Atlanta where the Georgia Dome is located and, on top of that, it meant that Nitro would be live in front of a huge crowd of 41,412 fans. Absolutely massive. And on such an important night, they needed a killer main event to draw interest from the fans. And so, on the episode of Thunder, which aired four days before tonight, on-screen commissioner J.J. Dillon did an interview with Tony Schiavone where he announced what the main event would be. I would suggest that you don't miss this coming Monday night because it is now official. Hollywood Hulk Hogan, the WCW champion, is contractually obligated to be in the Georgia Dome this coming Monday night for Nitro to defend the WCW heavyweight title belt <laughs> against what I feel is the number one contender, Goldberg! Oh, yeah! Oh, yes! The man's got it! That's right, the undefeated reigning WCW United States champion Bill Goldberg, who previously played football in the Georgia Dome for the hometown Atlanta Falcons, will face Hollywood Hulk Hogan for the WCW championship on this episode of Nitro. Definitely a fantastic main event, but let me just repeat the point that this match only had four days of build-up. I realize they needed a big match for the Georgia Dome show, but it might have served them better in retrospect if they had saved this one for pay-per-view. Just a thought. Anyway, at this juncture, Goldberg's record is 106 wins and zero losses, but apparently that is not impressive enough for Hulk Hogan, who began the episode of Nitro by cutting a promo where he said that Goldberg has only beaten nobodies, so he would not give him a shot at the title tonight unless Goldberg defeated a hand-picked opponent of his choosing first. We'll find out who that opponent is in just a bit, but let's run down some of the other results first. Booker T defeated Dean Malenko to retain his world television title. Raven defeated Canyon by disqualification. Scott Putsky defeated Riggs. Chris Jericho defeated Ultimo Dragon by disqualification to retain his cruiserweight title. The Public Enemy defeated Alex Wright and Disco Inferno. Goldberg defeated Hulk Hogan's hand-picked opponent, who turned out to be... Scott Hall! Hall had actually not wrestled on Nitro in roughly three months at this point, so this was a bit of a surprise, but Goldberg was still able to dispatch him with relative ease, which means that he will face Hogan for the title tonight after all. Juventud Guerrera defeated Psychosis. The Giant defeated Jim Duggan. 
Diamond Dallas Page, accompanied by NBA player Carl Malone, defeated Jim Neidhart. Lex Luger and Sting defeated Kidman and Sick Boy. And then it was finally time for the main event WCW World Heavyweight Champion Hollywood Hulk Hogan versus Bill Goldberg. The match itself was not all that great, but the finish was pretty spectacular. Hogan hit Goldberg with three leg drops, and for some reason, right as Hogan was in control, his NWO partner Kurt Hennig walked to ringside. However, DDP and Carl Malone walked out behind Hennig, and Carl friggin' Malone actually executed a diamond cutter on Hennig on the arena floor. This distracted Hogan, causing him to turn his back on Goldberg, and then, well, take a listen. And look at Goldberg! He's ready! This is it! This is it! Your career's on the line here! Do it! Do it! This place will erupt when he picks him up! He's got him up! Yes, that's right. Goldberg defeated Hulk Hogan to win his first ever world title in professional wrestling and cap off what could very well be the biggest night in the history of WCW. Goldberg was such a huge star back then that it almost makes you wonder what happened to that guy. Has anyone seen him lately? I wonder what he's up to. But anyway, WCW obviously delivered a killer main event, but was it enough to keep up with Monday Night Raw in the ratings? Well, when all was said and done, Raw scored a 4.0 rating, and Nitro blew them away with a 4.93. What an absolutely huge turnaround. Last week, WCW lost in the ratings by 1.3 points, and this week, they win the ratings by almost a whole point. Huge momentum swing. Not only that, but this was Nitro's first ratings win over Raw since April 20th, a span of 11 weeks. They probably cost themselves a shitload of money by giving away Hogan vs. Goldberg on free TV, but they certainly accomplished what they set out to do on this night by delivering a monumental show that brought in a ton of viewers, so I suppose you have to give them credit there. And so, let's go to the Raw synopsis. So for the first time in a while, I have to say I was pretty underwhelmed by an episode of Raw. The DX parody was fun, and the Undertaker reveal at the end was very cool, but everything else was completely unspectacular. I can only assume that they knew WCW was going to be delivering a huge show on this night, so they took their feet off the gas pedal a little bit, and now all of a sudden I've turned into Sable and Jacqueline because I'm using automotive metaphors as well. It should go without saying at this point that the live episodes of Raw are much more fun than these pre-taped ones. The WWF likely assumed that a large portion of their audience would read the spoilers ahead of time, so they saved their bigger moments for the live shows when the results would not be available six days in advance. Probably the smart move, but it definitely leaves you wanting more from those pre-taped episodes. The good news is they're back to being live next week, so I can only assume that big things are in store. Stay tuned. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. 
As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with a clip from a shoot interview that X-Pac did with Kayfabe Commentaries. You may recall X-Pac's line in the Nation of Domination parody where he impersonates Mark Henry and says, Smells like shit? but I think I'll eat some anyway. Well, that was apparently based on a real-life incident, so I will let him tell that story. Enjoy that clip, and be sure to keep an eye out for the next episode when Lee Carlos Cunningham from the Raw is Nitro podcast joins the show to discuss the July 13th, 1998 episode of Monday Night Raw. See you next time. I knew about the incident. It wasn't me. It was one of the other boys. I can tell you the story. I did. I wasn't there for the story, but it was fucking hilarious. Apparently, he told everybody, "Nobody better touch my sandwich." <laughs> I'm gonna be going to the ring. When I come back, this fucking sandwich better still be here. And I guess it was a meatball sandwich from Subway. <laughs> and so somebody shit on it and then put it back together, and he ate the whole thing and then licked his fucking fingers oh. afterwards. Oh my God! And he went, "That's what I thought." <laughs>